Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Broken Church Podcast. We're so excited. Uh, we got several different uh, people reaching out to us and wanting to hear us kind of address the homelessness and kind of the part the church itself should be playing in helping this epidemic. And I know in our area, uh, I was kind of sharing with these two gentlemen here a little bit, but a uh, quick introduction beforehand, before I get ahead of myself. As always, we've got the amazing Langley Shazer with us. He always is here to inspire and encourage, and he's an awesome part of this podcast. And also, we have Dion Joseph with us, and he's got an amazing, amazing story. And I'll let him share a little bit about himself before we get going, so you kind of know his heart and all this. So, Dion, do you want to quickly kind of give us a rundown of, of yourself? Okay, well, I'm a police officer in the city of Los Angeles. I've been so for 26 years, 24 of those years working with directly with the homeless in a place known as Skid Row. And uh, I didn't want to be there at first, but I ended up uh, discovering it was my calling. You know, uh, God kind of led me there. I didn't want to be there, but didn't realize that he prepared me for that from my upbringing. My upbringing, I had two parents who uh, fed the homeless religiously in a responsible way. That's very important, in a responsible way for 10 years. Every Saturday, uh, my uh, father and mother raised 41 foster children on top of their four children and three grandchildren. So you can imagine it was very uh, crazy at my household, but it was wonderful to watch my parents show love to children who were abused, neglected, homeless from a place they were taught not to expect it, and that was from the adults. Uh, and that was a beautiful thing. And watching my father uh, give people second chances with his construction company who couldn't get jobs anywhere else uh, uh, because of their race or because of their criminal background. My dad never told me that I was digging a ditch next to an uh, ex-convict convicted of murder. He never told me I was wiring a house next to a drug dealer. Uh, and, uh, but he told me, these aren't my employees, these are my friends. So after about three months of being in Skid Row and getting used to it, I realized that I was home and I, you'll never hear me call the homeless bums, hobos, transient. I will always call them my friends, even the ones that hate me. <laughs> but, uh, that, that, that's me in a nutshell. I'm a born again Christian and proud. I've been born again since uh, March of 1979. And I've watched Jesus do miracles in, in people's lives through my parents. And I've seen him do incredible things through my life. And I just love taking the time to share my story especially with people of faith right now, because we need people of faith to get beyond the walls of the church and get out there and be who we're supposed yeah. to be in this world. And that's lights in dark, dark places. But remember, people of faith, God gives us the gifts of faith. But remember, he also gives us the gift of wisdom and discernment. Let your heart be the catalyst for any noble thing you want to do, but use your head to get it done. And that's what I'm about. And I hope I could, we can all share and learn from each other today. Absolutely. And that's kind of my kind of quick, most people that tune into the Broken Church know my ministry is called Awaken because that's kind of my heartbeat is, is the Broken Church kind of creates the dialogue, but the Awaken, I want to see the action start taking place and unfolding and doing so much more. And we're, we're doing a lot of things, but we're trying to figure out different ways to do things better and do things the right way. Uh, Absolutely. So you kind of uh, mentioned there, uh, the art about uh, doing, feeding uh, people in the right way. So maybe you could highlight that a little bit for us so we can kind of get around, our minds wrapped around what would be the right way to feed the homeless. Well, there's two two correct ways that I saw it. First was my parents. Uh, my parents fed people in a place where they knew there was no services. And the wonderful thing about what my parents and their fellow church members is they stuck around and cleaned up after themselves. They didn't just feed. They didn't just throw bags of clothes to the homeless, shout hallelujah and leave. And also they got to know the people who they were helping. 
so they could identify what the needs were. So every Saturday we had people actually getting their needs met, not just people engaging in outreach because this is what my 501c3 says. I have to show what I, my work for my 501c3 or because this is all I know to do. My parents really thought it out. That was from a civilian level. From a level of a police officer working in Skid Row where you have 108 programs designed to try to help get the homeless out the street, including four or even five major shelters that serve about 12,000 meals a day. Like literally the average homeless person in Skid Row can eat without people coming to Skid Row four or five times a day. Uh, uh, they could feed 12,000 people. Uh, so what I tell church groups that would come down there that I know your heart's in the right place, but you're part of the problem because when you leave, guess what? The trash you leave behind, the people have to live in the filth, which creates the rats, the roaches, the vermin. Also, you need to know that the service providers there prior to the pandemic, they have their feeding programs and their clothing programs to guide people to the services they need to get them off of their feet. When you feed the people of Skid Row in the street or in places like Skid Row, there are services, you end up robbing them of any incentive to change their life. Why go into a shelter when I can sit out on the sidewalk, eat on a dirty street and continue to use my drug of choice and continue to destroy myself? So who have you helped in the end? When you're giving away clothes, I've seen people come out, big trucks, loudspeakers, music blaring, and they throw bags of clothes out to the homeless. So what the homeless do is after you leave, and not even, they don't even wait till you leave, they start fighting over the clothes. Why do they fight over the clothes? It's not because they're naked. You won't see one naked person in Skidrow unless they smoke what we call Sherm in Long Beach. You know what I mean? We call Sherm yeah. but naked, right? Uh, but it's not because they're naked, it's because they're fighting over the best item of clothes that they could fold up on the sidewalk and sell to do what? To buy crack cocaine. And unfortunately, I get into a lot of, I used to get into a lot of debates with a lot of church groups who would like to play Bible chess with me. And I don't like playing Bible chess with people. I don't like pulling out verses and this and that. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I'll hit them with this. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing when, when, when doing the work of the work of the Lord. And how do you do that? Volunteer at the shelters, donate to the shelters, donate your time and money, find out what the programs are and help in that matter. And if you are gonna help in the street, if you insist, I'm not telling you to stop coming down and helping in the street. Well, what you can do is give out things that de-incentivize the streets in places like Skid Row, not incentivize the streets like hygiene kits, okay? That has soap, razors, shaving cream, shaving razors, uh, 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 sanitary napkins, L, here's a good one, hand sanitizer, things like yeah. this that could help reduce the spread of germs. Uh, and the only clothing items that should be in those uh, uh, hygiene kits, a little sandwich bag, are socks and underwear. Outside yes. of that, give your clothes, give your canned foods to the missions. Also, you'll know in Skid Row, there are 60 housing programs, 60 housing um, apartment buildings for low-income supportive housing. They have food bins. You can donate your canned goods to them so that it helps cut the cost of the people who are living on low incomes to uh, and subsidize and so they can be able to get food and cook for themselves and things of that nature. But don't give in the streets of places like Skid Row because you're only making the problem worse, even with the best of intentions. So these are some of the things. And also I tell, what I tell is don't do look at me charity. I, I, I can't stand that. You know, you got groups that come out there with their videos, filming themselves, putting shoes on the homeless and things like that. You know, uh, you, we know what the Bible says about that. Don't, don't do right. your work for people to see. And what the church is doing is completely counterintuitive to what the Lord was doing, because that's all the thing you're going to, you're going to get. You're going to get that smile, that 1 million views, but in the end, you've done nothing to really help somebody. So do it in secret, do it in private, don't do it for the show and, and do it smart so we can get people off the streets and guide them to services. Absolutely. Uh, 100%. You mind if I jump in? 
Uh, I, I do want to pose a question because that's something that uh, I often talk about when it comes to outreach is, you know, what what is the motivation behind the outreach and why is, you know, I, I, I take offense sometimes to uh, evangelism practices, outreach practices, because you're, you're we, we need to be making sure that we are learning about the person. We're trying to meet the need and not trying to look good. Um, and so I, the question I have for you is, why do you think it is so difficult to get that across to organize religious uh, groups? You know, why is it so difficult to say, hey, listen, instead of trying to to, to go out here uh, as your as your your group, your denomination, your church, whatever, and and, sh and showcase what you're doing, wh why why can you not go and put your services into the programs which already exist? Why do you think that is? I remember my mother and father, my mother and father told me once, they said, some people are so spiritually minded that they're no earthly good. You know, Ooh. some people are just what they call Bible thumpers. They're just Bible, yes. Bible, Bible, the word, the word, the word, and the word is great. The word is great. But once again, God gives us wisdom and discernment. Like you said, like what you said, if you don't get to know the person you're trying to help, it just doesn't matter. You have to understand the need. Look, before you come with any food or any clothes or anything, go down there with your church members and just actually have conversations and get to know people on a one-on-one -on -one basis over several weeks. And after a while, the ones that begin to trust you will start telling you their story and then you're gonna know what they need. You know, now you're gonna know that hey, I need a drug program or no, I really need a way to get into a shelter away from Skid Row because the temptation to fail is too great. I can't get clean because the drug dealer is not only outside of the drug program, the security is paid off and they let them inside the drug program. That's when you start seeing what these individuals <laughs> actually need. You know, you have some people who want housing, but they don't want transitional housing where they have to live with somebody because of trauma. You know, they're afraid to live with somebody because they don't want to get stolen from it. So that's what happens when you take the time to find out on an individual basis, not just coming down here laying hands on people and throwing food and clothes at them you got to do a little more and the way to do that is to a volunteer at these shelters because the missions will expose you to these individuals they want you to come volunteer they want you to come ed yourself, ed educate yourself on the people and the services they offer and you'll be able to have that one-on-one -on -one dialogue with somebody and you will figure out within your own church a lot of these churches have hundreds if not a couple thousand people who are doing incredible things that can help now you know, hey, I know Brother Jones who uh, runs a housing service down in South LA, or I know a uh, sister so-and-so who has a domestic violence program. This lady is a victim of domestic violence. Or I know a lady right here who has an extra space in her garage who will take this family in who's from South Dakota who's now in Skid Row and take them into their home. You know, this is how we solve the problem of homelessness by developing those relationships. And that's what I've done over 24 years. Develop the relationships first. And, and that's the smartest way you can go about doing it. Absolutely. Agreed. hundred percent. You know, I think back as you were talking about the first time that I, I volunteered at the Salvation Army to serve uh, to serve lunch. And, and I'll tell you, the thing that was the most revealing that, you know, because we all have this this preconception of what homelessness is, why it is and who yes. these people are. I, I didn't realize the amount of families that were homeless women and children are, and, and complete families. We're not just talking about women and children. We're talking about husband, wife, kids, all homeless, living out of a car right. and, and different things. And so it really it really does behoove us to get to know the, the circumstance because uh, I think that we all, especially as we only see what mass media is talking about and, and what it's exposing, you know, we think it's just the, the I know that, you know, the drugs, poverty, a lot of things are exacerbating this situation, but a lot of it are people who have just fallen on hard, fallen on hard times, 
and their family unit is still intact. They're just struggling to make ends meet and trying to get to that that next that next step. So I do want to take a second for everybody who's watching now and realize that a lot of what you are being exposed to isn't the truth of what homelessness looks like. Right. And I always say this, there's four kinds of uh, four groups of homeless people. And, and I'm going to be Skid Row specific because that's where I deal. There are four kinds of groups of people in Skid Row, like anywhere else. And I always say this. The first group are good people. These are people who they're not bad people. They failed out on the hard times. They're family members who lost their job or turn in the economy or whatever, you know, and they have to beat down the doors of a shelter to get in. And they're just trying to survive because of nimbyism, not in my backyard, that attitude allows uh, the lack of creation of services where they're from, so they have to come to places in Skid Row. That's the vast majority of people in Skid Row. The second group, you're going to have good people who do bad things. These are your drug addicts. Now, this is a big chunk of Skid Row, too. And I call them good people who do bad things because they weren't drug, they weren't born drug addicts. They weren't right. born bad people. For some reason or another, whether they're at a party or because of some kind of trauma, they ended up on drugs. And because they're on the lower end of the economic ladder, uh, when they begin binging on cocaine, crack, meth, and all these other things, they don't have far to fall. And when they don't have far to fall, they don't have means. And when you don't have means, how do you support your habit? You go commit crime. And I'll talk about that too. You have the third group, which are ex-convicts who've made mistakes. They burn bridges. But if you give them an environment conducive to change, guess what? You discover that they want to do the right thing. They just yes. need the proper environment. And then the last group, uh, and I'm just going to say it, evil bastards, hundreds and hundreds of evil human beings who descend upon Skid Row under the guise of homelessness to prey on the people. Now, here's the difference uh, uh, in Skid Row juxtaposed to anywhere else in the United States of America, and maybe it's similar in some places. Here's what it looks like. Because it's so concentrated, there tends to be this constant and frequent cross-contamination of those four groups, and here's what it looks like. The good people often have to look the other way uh, when they uh, see crime or even when they become victims of crime so they don't get 86th out of the area. The good person who does bad things, they stay on the bad side longer. Why? Because the temptation to fail is just too great. Literally, you have people in drug programs who can't get on drugs because the drug dealers in the drug program, right? Uh, for the ex-convict with redemptive qualities, here's his problem. Skid rolls off the chain, crime is high, the police can't stop it, and his parole agent only gave him $221 a month to, to survive on, sent him to Skid Row and says, be a good boy, right? <laughs> it's Skid Row. How <laughs> So he's looking out of his window, no resource center. <laughs> yeah. And he's seeing a drug dealer making thousands of dollars. What's he going to do? He's going to eventually go down and try to find what's called work. And I have a crazy story about work. I want to tell you guys about. And then the last group of people, uh, the evil bastards, sorry, just, they just, that's just who they are. I've been dealing with it for 24 years. They pull all the strings, link up with homeless advocates and make the police and law enforcement look like the bad guys for trying to stop it and create that environment conducive to change so that the influence of their service providers can actually have a stronger influence over them than the Crips and the Bloods and the gang members who prey on them. So that's the reality of homelessness in many areas as far as I see on my level. Yeah. And kind of one thing I want to kind of take from this, because it is the broken church kind of looking at kind of different things that you all have said is trying to figure out how the church can actually look at individuals and not necessarily as them as a whole, because when we start working to the working to the point of how do we help those individual people like families need special care and like you said the evil pastors need special care like hopefully getting taken out of that they're looking at yeah. each as individual and figuring out how to actually to 
minister to those individuals, we can be much more effective. And kind of what Langley was talking about, so many churches are kind of, they're isolated, like they want to be on this island, because I don't know if they want to be the one being known for doing the good or anything else. You see not a lot of uh, churches working together to help people. And then that, I think that creates a lot of other problem, because if you're just out here just trying to make a name for yourself and everything else, you miss a lot of those issues and a lot of those problems when you actually come together and actually talk about them. Well, what, what issues do we really go? And like you said, meeting with these people and figuring out the, the different people, the groups and figure out how to properly help them. One of the big things at Awaken, I always feel like if there's already good programs in place, we're not going to create something new. We're, we're going to help push people into those already existing agencies to do greater things. And then that opens up the door. Like you said, those different people groups, we can push them into the programs that actually help with that specific area and help them get back on their feet and help them actually get help instead of just a bandaid on the problem. So, yeah, I think the yeah. church needs bigger ways to come together and have conversations with each other because we're supposed to be all on the same team. But sadly, yeah. so many times it's, a, it's like a, a race, like who can do the best and get the best glory from it. And that's kind of one of my big issues with the church right now it kind of is heartbreaking in a sense instead of being this one body trying to make things better and especially in the homeless area i imagine if we were all conversating with each other and we actually had meetings around to be like well we've got this people group in this area let's help move them because a lot of times you see in different ministries like certain people groups congregate to it because i know we have one ministry in downtown kingsport and you see a lot of the drug addicts and everything else and they'll just hang out there all night sleep out on the, the stoop of it and everything else and they'll be there all night so you that has its own people group and it's not always the good people that go to there. There's other programs mm -hmm. for it. I, I like what you said. Basically you're saying create a network. The church mm -hmm. has to network with each other. Stop being rivals and yes. get together, have meetings and network. I, I mean, my God, could you imagine how many homeless people could fit in Joe Olsen's church, you know, uh, at night for a safe sleep? You know, can you, and I'm not knocking the man, I'm just giving an example uh, of how the church can network with each other and really, really help solve this issue in a way uh, that's not safe see it's i i know what churches i've been in church all my life and we like to do safe things we like to be safe yeah. christians you know sometimes you have to get out there and get deep and when you get deep you're going to get your heart broke uh you're, you're going to see things that are going to break your heart but you got to imagine the things jesus saw you know that broke his heart yeah. but he kept coming he kept loving he kept trying he never gave up on us and that's what the church has to uh embody is not giving up on individuals and really getting to the heart of the issue on it because there's no such thing as a universal fix to homelessness yeah. every homeless individual has yeah. a different individual need you have some like i said who struggle with addiction then you have others who struggle with mental illness then you have some who struggle with ptsd you have our wonderful veterans out there who are who are out there then you have others who develop rape domestic violence human trafficking and if the church don't become experts in these uh, you know these fields and, and get people who are within their midst to go out and do uh, uh, walks in places like Skid Row and reach out to these women and show them that there's hope. Look, there are people in Skid Row who just need to break the cycle of not believing they can ever escape Skid Row. So how about on Sunday, you send a bus down there, pick them up and bring them to your church in Orange County so they can have praise and worship and just break their tunnel vision a bit and connect with people there. Oh, but we don't want to do that. You know, <laughs> we don't want to do that. But we because where did Jesus go? Jesus didn't go with all the yeah, fancy people absolutely. who smelled good, who were wearing perfume, wearing Versace. And he didn't do that. How did the church become the opposite? The church went out where the fire was to go out, save people from burning. And, and, and we've got to get back to that as a church. We really do. Yeah.
Agreed, agreed. And that's something that I'm glad you touched on that because as, as you guys were both speaking, that's what I was thinking about was I've been parts of some some ministries where we had like a, a family's first program, one of my, my previous churches where we brought people in and they got that night and it was a, a network of churches each night they slept in a different church. But during that process, you know, we, there were soft skills. There was, you know, you get a shower, you get shaved, we teach you how to write a resume, we'll get you to where you're going. And those programs are great and we got to do them on a larger scale. And I was thinking about you know, why we got opposite. And we have this, the church has this unique apprehension or phobia of uh, the, the the downcast and the downtrodden as if it's going to rub off on us, right? If, if we engage right, with right. them, like, oh my God, some, something's going to happen in my life because I'm trying to help this person. And, and that's what we've got to get over is to your point, you know, Jesus went to those who were marginalized. That's what we were supposed to be doing is going out and helping. And nothing's, Nothing's going to happen to you again if you're using wisdom and, you know, you're, you're using taking the appropriate steps and it's not just uh, reckless abandon when you're trying to operate. But all things considered, doing it the correct way, you, you're not nothing's going to happen to you if you are engaging in trying to help these people. If you are taking the time to understand what's going on with these people, if you're taking the time to figure out what is the need that I must address. It's going to take the conversation. You're going to have to be in close proximity. You're going to have to go out there as you do uh, at, to Skid Row and other places and really place yourself in the mix, uh, you know, and yeah. realize that, you, you know, the, the whatever's happening with these people is something that we are equipped to to help and address and not something that we need to be fearful of, because for some reason we think that once I leave, all of a sudden I'm going to be looked at as a homeless person. You know, let's right, just, you know, right. get the ego out of that. Yeah. And, and so I think it's the one, thing, the one thing Jesus did was he knew the person he was trying to help. If you read, if, if you read the word, you remember the woman at the well, he knew how many people she slept with. Yeah, <laughs> right. he, knew, he knew all that because he was Jesus, you know, and that's something the church has to buy. Now, we're not going to be able to see like Jesus sees somebody's whole entire life. We're going to have to do a little bit of uh, legwork to get to that point. Uh, there was a great young man I met named Justin and uh, he created this uh, program for uh, 100 versus 100. I forgot the name of the program where he found 100 just regular citizens from all over the county and brought them to Skid Row and linked them up to one homeless person to mentor. See, sometimes a lot of us try to bite off more than we can chew. Yeah. And that's how people get lost in the sauce because you're trying to do too much. So 100 people came out and adopted one homeless person to stay in contact with. Now, of course, I'd say half of those homeless people lost contact because of addiction. But if I remember correctly, the other half actually stayed in contact and were able to help a few people get into services. You know, so these are the things that one on one connection. Once you help that one, go on to the next, go on to the next. And who are you? Who are you what are you creating now? You're actually creating more helpers because that person you helped is going to want to do the same thing later. So so it, we just got to stop this. This is all I know to do and think beyond that as as Christians and believers and say, we got to do a deep dive into these people's lives. Mm -hmm. We got to no judgment. OK, no judgment. Let me listen. I don't care how disturbing their story is. Let me listen and hear them and let me find out who can help this person, if not me. And that's how we got to look at it. And I think we can, I think the church can do something. And let me tell you how powerful the church is. There's this uh, beautiful pastor. I forget her name. Um, God, I hate that I'm getting old. I remember her name, but she would come every weekend, Saturday, Sunday, and she wouldn't bring food, clothes, anything. She would just stand on the most violent corner of Skid Row and bring the word in a non-judgmental way. Not that old traditional yelling, screaming, having an asthma attack, you know, type of, type of thing. She would yeah. just talk to the people. And you know, when she was on the corners 
for those three hours, I looked at the crime data for three hours, no one got stabbed, no one got shot. You guys have a lot of power. You guys bring a lot of power. If you're coming in groups, you're bringing the word, you're bringing love, you're gonna be safe. And you're, mm-hmm. and you're also keeping the people you're reaching out to safe as well. And they'll be glad to see you. They'll be glad to see you. <laughs> yeah, and kind of my thing is we've turned church into more of a country club than a rescue mission. That We, we want to create, create safe atmosphere. We want to come have a feel-good message and encourage, encourage us and inspire us and then go out and then we don't do anything deeper. And that's just not what I see Jesus laid out the church, laid out the church. That's another big issue about kind of looking at the church. I know the church, Jesus Christ church is not broken, but what we've done with it is kind of broken in, in a place. And we, we're just not walking it out like Jesus walked it out. Cause it, we're, we're just creating these country clubs where we can go hang out, see our buddies, have to be inspired and encouraged and, and not do anything else. And, I and, they it on, and they put it on YouTube. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember someone telling me once, uh, you know, the, the church needs to start being a hospital and stop being uh, a police station. And, and, and I think that's uh, <laughs> what, what Joseph was just saying that, you know, it's supposed to be a place of healing. It's supposed to be a place of, of uh, non-judgment. It's supposed to be a place of deliverance. So it's supposed to be a place of liberation and freedom. And then we've got to get back to being able to do that. See, we got to break the yoke. We got to break the yoke. Let me show you an example of how strong the yoke is for many individuals who probably want to change in Skid Row. I was an undercover officer in Skid Row from 1999 to 2001. Best gig I ever did. You know, people like Skid Row, that's the best gig. No, really, I got to see a side of homelessness that I never thought I'd see working undercover. So I remember we were focused on gang members who were gambling their drug money off the drug money they made off the backs of the addicted in Skid Row. So sure enough, I get in my uniform. I had on my white tank top, beanie. I had a a jailhouse pants, flip-flops, white socks, and a wristband, right? And I'm mobbing down the street like I just got out of jail, right? What we call glass house. So I see this group of guys shaking dice and gambling dope money. They're in nice jumpsuits, gold chains, everything. This was back in the uh, uh, late 90s. And so I walk up to the guys, and I see the gambling, and I see the violation, right? And I blended in so well, they didn't even recognize me. So when I see the violation, I give my partners a signal, got them. They all came, my partners came around the corner and they're black and white, right? Somebody yells out one time warning everybody the police were coming. And of course, I got to stay in character. So here, here I am, button elbows, taking off running with everybody else, right? <laughs> and, and while I'm running, I hear this, cuz, slow down, cuz. I'm like, oh, I got to go. I don't want to get caught up. Cuz, slow down. They got who they're going to get. Hey, come here. Let me holler at you. What's up? He goes, damn, you, you look strong, man. God dang, you big. I'm like, yeah, yeah. He said, can you fight? I'm like, yeah, I'm nice with these. What's up? He goes, uh, uh, you need some work? Yeah, I need some work. Well, what you talking about? McDonald's? Is it? No, no, cuz. Tell you what. You see that little Asian girl right there? You see that old dude right there? See young buck right there? Each one of them owe me money. I'll pay you $50 a head every day to bust their head to the white meat until I get my money. And I was like, what? Thanks, cuz. Boom, boom. Gave him some dap. Took off running. He gets arrested. You should have seen the look on his face at the station when he saw me, right? <laughs> so <laughs> my, my boss comes up to me and says, Joseph, good work, but uh, we still got three hours left in our shift. I need you to go to 7th and Stanford. But there's two uh, sex workers out there who are HIV. One's HIV, one's full-blown. Uh, we got to get them off the streets because they're infecting John. So he's like, change clothes and uh, 
we'll go out there and hit the streets. And I was like, no, I'm gonna keep this on. He said, Joseph, you ain't gonna get nobody looking like that. I'm like, baby, I'm chocolate thunder. I can get anybody I want, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I kept the same uniform on and I'm mobbing down the street, seven to Stanford, right? And this attractive but weathered 23 year old uh, woman comes up to me and she says to me, hey, big daddy, you need a date. I'm like, hey, heck yeah, I need a date. I've been locked up in the glass house for six months. What's up? What's on the menu? So she starts reading me the menu. I won't read the menu. This is, this is a show about faith. <laughs> <laughs> but she, she $20 for this, $40 for this, and you can't do this, right? So as she's reading the menu, she says to me, uh, she starts to cry. I'm like, baby, uh, read the menu. What are you crying for? I'm trying to get my freak on. What's going on? She says, um, I'm sorry for crying. Look, um, you just got out of jail, right? I'm like, yeah. I said, uh, she said, are you homeless? She said, yeah. She said, you need a place to stay? I said, I got a homie that's trying to work on getting me some housing. She says, forget that. That's going to take you six months to a year. Look, my man just got sent away for 10 years. I don't have anybody in these streets. I can look in your eyes and tell you you're a kind soul. Look, I stay at this ratty hotel on 7th and, uh, and Gladys. Uh, you can come stay with me. You can have sex with me for free. I'll go make the money. I just need you to protect me. In a span of three hours, in a span of three hours, I had a job, a girlfriend, a place to stay, and a tax-free income. See, that's what the church, understand that that's the temptation that the people of Skid Row are up against. Whether you're someone just getting out of jail, whether you're an addict, or whether you're a young woman struggling just to survive on your own in the streets. That's, the, that's what you need to know when you're going into places like Skid Row. And be prepared. Once again, Jesus went and reached those individuals who are on the fringe, not the safe folks. He went to the people who were on the fringe. Let's get to the French church. And that's that's beautiful because something you mentioned earlier it is about listening uh, and active listening and not going in with your own presuppositions about what what you're going to encounter or what to expect or even how to address something that's, that, that you're encountering when you're there. Uh, and I think that's one of the, the fundamental tenets of how we need to operate is to be able to say, okay, this is going to be crazy there's, there's no telling what we're going to hear um and you're probably going to cringe whatever's going to happen but you need to just listen yeah. and you know and, and i know we i know we're talking about places like skitter we always focus on issues and problems and i don't like to be focused solo on problems we all also need to focus on solutions as well and when i go speak and share at churches not just to inspire but to educate as well across the country uh, I, I tell them here are some of the solutions that the church actually needs to get involved in trying to push and, and this is just from a street level, foundational level, okay? Because part of empirical data is not just stats, it's what you observe. And this is what mm -hmm. I observe. We have a major issue with mental illness, okay? Yes. America's solution for helping the mentally ill was to close down the asylums, sprinkle pills on the uh, mentally ill in the name of civil liberties and say, hey, congratulations, you're free, enjoy your civil liberties, right? And they gave them some pills, right? Come back and see me in two weeks but they never came back. Some of them fell into the loving arms of family members, right? But then you have others, volumes and volumes of them who ended up in places like Skid Row because that's where their services were. And when they get to places like Skid Row, they take their prescribed medication and they either throw it away or sell it to, to make enough money to do what? Self-medicate on the hard stuff like crack, marijuana, sherm, spice, and all these other drugs, PCP. Uh, and here's why they do that. Because their prescribed medication makes them feel down it makes them feel lethargic and it's skid row it skid row is turned up bill you can't be down and turned yeah. up bill you got to be ready for anything so uh so who's there to medicate them of course the crips and the bloods and and when they give them these hard drugs they exacerbate their problems 100 fold see 
I know as a police officer that being mentally ill is not a crime. When you see these horror stories of police officers getting into shootings and using support for mental ill, it's not that we're stupid. We know it's not a crime to be bipolar. It's not a crime to be paranoid schizophrenic. That's not a crime. But when those things meet crack, meth, and all these other drugs, it exacerbates the situation and it creates a chemical buffer between us and the crisis that even the most highly trained mental health guru will not approach. You know what right. they're gonna do when they get to the scene with all this rhetoric talking about mental health workers and social workers? They're gonna call us anyway. They're doing it now because they can't handle it when there's a chemical buffer. So here's the way we solve that aspect to a degree because we'll never be able to solve it. The asylums are gone, we can't involuntarily. <laughs> Currently it's 72 hours. We cannot humanely believe we're gonna help anybody in 72 hours or less. And now it's not even 72 hours because the hospitals are full. Once they're there, the nurses and doctors look at them and go, you feel better? They say yes. And in six hours, they sprinkle pills on them and kick them right back out, out, of the door, out, out in the door, okay? Let me give you a horrible example of what that looks like. 1998, me and my partner were walking down the street. I'm not the hero in the story, my partner is. I'm eating a bacon wrapped hot dog, walking down the dirtiest street in Skid Row. And while we're walking, uh, my partner disappears out of the corner of my eye. And when I look, he's flying through the air like Superman to get a woman who looks like a soccer mom and snatched her from the path of an oncoming MTA bus. Throws her into my arms. I grab her. I drop my delicious hot dog. Lady, what the hell are you doing? She said the magic words. Something in my head told me to kill myself, so I tried to kill myself. Great. Ding, 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 ding. We can help her. We put her in the car, took her to the station, had her evaluated, took her to the hospital, high-fived each other. We saved the day, right? Three hours later, one of my partners come up to me and said, hey, Joseph, remember that lady you guys saved on 6th and San Julian? Yeah, what's up? Uh, she successfully turned herself into a pancake in the area of Cesar Chavez and Broadway. She found another MDA, MTA bus to jump in front of because they released her too early. So here's what we need to do. And I have countless stories that I'll break your heart. Instead of 72 hours, it needs to be six weeks. And here's why. It takes about six weeks for them to actually benefit from the therapeutic attributes of their medication. Okay, you're not gonna let somebody fresh off a triple bass bypass surgery off the table or brain surgery and just release them into the street. You're not gonna do that. So right. why would you, are we doing the same thing to mentally ill people? It has to be six weeks because A, for many, you have to detox them first. You have to give their medication time to stabilize them. And in that six weeks, you have more time to develop a report and find their loved ones and family members to connect them so they can actually get conservatorship over them. Uh, and we need to streamline the conservatorship process. Now, if after that six weeks, no one's connected them, guess what? They'll be out, of course, but they'll be more stable. They're used to taking their medication. And if they fall off, we just begin the process again. That's where the money should be going to help them. If we're not doing that, we're not going to solve the problem. As far as homelessness, I spoke to this. Uh, we have to de decentralize services. The worst thing they ever did was make Skid Row the mecca of all these homelessness. Now, Mayor Tom Bradley was a good man, but he had a horrible idea. He says, hey, bring all your homeless to us because we have shelters, right? And they never stopped doing it for, for decades, right? They kept bringing them. And what you do is you create this, sadly, for lack of a better term, concentration camp or asylum without walls, right? And people end up getting hurt. Actually, if people want to politicize this, which they often do, I don't. I'm not political. I'm a centrist. You have the extreme left and the extreme right who are equally, equally responsible for the issue of homelessness. And here's why. You have the extreme right that says, not in my backyard. I don't want to pay for your service, but I want my tax dollars going to help these crazy people who screw up their lives, right? Okay, just ship them down to Skid Row so I don't have to see them, and then my church will come down there and feed them once or twice a month. Then you have the people on the extreme left who says, because they're homeless, because they're poor, because they're addicted, 
the police and everybody should just back off and let them do whatever they want to do. This side creates the asylum without walls, the extreme right. The extreme left puts them in extreme danger on a daily basis. So both sides are equally responsible for they, there needs to be order. There needs to be enforcement and you need that enforcement to work synergetically with services to get people into mandated programs because without mandated programs the vast majority of these individuals will not get clean and when i say enforcement people don't freak out i don't want to see somebody possession of a, of a rock of cocaine go to prison for the rest of their life they do need time to get it out their system and they do need to go to a mandatory program that that will work and be more effective than just slapping them on the wrist and letting them go. So these are things that have to happen and strengthening laws. Uh, if you're, if people are selling drugs near drug programs, those laws have to be stiffer. Those penalties have to be harder. Because what sense does it make calling Skid Row a recovery zone where you allow drug dealers to run rampant? That's that's just ridiculous. So uh, these are some of the things that I suggest. And and, and lastly, just let uh, let the professionals do their jobs. I'm talking about police, firefighters and everybody else who are actively involved touching those, talk to them before you make a decision on tying hands and let us do our jobs. Let us separate the wolves from the sheep in places like Skid Row so we can create that environment. I saw it happen from 2005 to 2011. Skid Row was clean and relatively safe. More people were graduating from drug programs and getting better and they were thanking the police for it, you know, and they want it, they actually want it. Unfortunately, the media, like you said, uh, they're pushing out a different narrative because they don't want to put a stigma on homelessness. And, and they're listening to more of the homeless advocates who benefit from Skid Row looking like it does instead of people who actually care, who are talking, who are loading the dead bodies onto their coroner's truck. They're not listening to me, you know, and it's really unfortunate and it's really sad. I, I have heartbreaking stories for days about that. And kind of me, I often look at the problem whenever you have that much homelessness in one area, they, it kind of, it, fuels itself because they're able to share drugs with each other and have drugs and everything else. And I often ask the question, wouldn't it be better to try to figure out something away from like a city to create an actual facility to try to get the people to away from the problem where you can actually, where they can actually get the full help they need, mental health recovery, help to get off the drugs and everything where it's harder to, come in contact and I get drugs might slip through but creating an atmosphere where it's not readily available for them and actually take them out of these environments actually putting them somewhere safe where they can actually fully recover and try that to figure out happened. yeah that actually happened in Skid Row uh, I worked closely with the Union Rescue Mission one of the greatest organizations I love the mission and I love the CEO Andy Bells because he said Dion I'm trying to put myself out of business and he's dead serious so he created an extension of the Union Rescue Mission in Silmar called the Hope Gardens Project where it's actually apartments living quarters for families for families and you should have seen the people of Silmar. they were brought pitchforks and tiki torches no we don't want those homeless people burning down our hills it was crazy we weren't talking about crack addicts and and drug dealers we're talking about actually actual families right and i had to go and lend my voice to help get that thing uh, uh set up out there and it's been up for about 10 years they haven't had one issue not one issue because it, it's a specific need for families and uh, another thing I want people to be aware of, if you're ever coming down to Skid Row, if you're listening to me and you're from the Los Angeles area and you do this, recognize that many of the homeless on the streets are routine victims of violence. And here's why. Yes. The, the gang members control every block of Skid Row. The biggest gang is Skid, is, 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 that controls it is Grape Street. If you're homeless and you try to set up on Skid Row in a tent on a sidewalk, a gang member is going to approach you. Let's say you're from Idaho or somewhere, and he's going to say, "Hey, we don't know you. What are you? What the hell are you doing here?" 
and they go, well, I'm just, I'm homeless. There's services here. I'm just trying to live. Nope. You have three choices. Sell my drugs, let my women use your tent for human trafficking, hold my guns, or die. Or you could pay a tax. You have homeless people who came to Skid Row who weren't criminals, who ended up having to be a part of the criminal element, or pay their entire social security check to live on a sidewalk, like real estate. They, these gangsters are like real estate agents. They're crazy, you know? This is my territory. You have to pay rent every month. So money that could be going to helping them get to hotels and things of that nature and, and low income low income supportive housing ends up going into the pockets of the dope man. And then you have those who have issues with addiction who are more than willing to participate in the criminal activity to support their habit. See, I'm trying to open the eyes of the church to the reality of why it's so hard to get people to change. That's what you're up against. And you have to go and break those jokes, not just directly, but yes, talk to your city officials. Uh, we need to decentralize it. When I say decentralize, I don't mean shutting down programs in Skid Row. We need all 108 programs in Skid Row. I don't want to see one closed. I don't want to see another one open in Skid Row when we have 88 cities in LA County and only Long Beach, Santa Monica, and downtown LA are the only places that are willing to open their doors and take some of the burden off. And when I say decentralize, once again, don't think I want to send our drug addicts and our folks who aren't ready to you. We have elderly people there who can't even fend for themselves. Why don't you set up a low-income supportive housing service for the elderly in your area? Help us out. We have children, we have veterans, we have all the people with handicaps and wheelchairs who can't even defend themselves. They're not gonna do too much damage to your community. Set up a shelter or a low income in your community and help take the burden off of places like Skid Row and downtown LA. And the people that remain will have a better environment because they won't be like canned sardines and on top of each other. And we'll be able to see better what's going on right. to be able to create that environment and separate the wolves from the sheep. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It goes back to what you were saying earlier is actually figuring out what each issue is and doing and handling it in its own way and in its own manner and actually separating it instead of looking. A lot of people just see homeless people and they just lump it all in one in one thought pattern instead of seeing the individuals and the circumstance and the situation and figuring out how they can fix each thing. But that goes back to creating relationships like you were talking about earlier. So, yeah, that just dialed it. It just kind of comes full circle in my mind, I guess. There are so many, so many different needs. Women, women make up. 40% of the Skid Row population, and two thirds of them have been victims of sexual assault twice, probably more than that. I mean, my God, what, what, what wonderful things your church could do if you just go out there and reach out and gain the trust of these women and guide them away. My God, because some of these women are mothers. I, I, know, I know these women who have kids, I've met their kids, but then their kids got taken away from them. And then before we could reunite them, they ended up overdosing and dying on heroin in the streets. You know the church could have a huge impact in being a buffer to offset that and save so many lives. I believe that with my whole heart. I, I want to pose a question. Um, how, how do you think we should, we combat the, the gentrification issue, right? A lot of people don't want to open their doors because right. The reality is it's going to bring down their property value. It, there's, 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 there's this optics of, you know, now my my community has an eyesore, uh, no matter how pristine the, the actual community is that we're trying to develop. Oh, it's, it's because it's low income. Now we've got to, you know, deal with this. And it's going to be a blight on, on our city. How do we how do we combat that from I don't want to say political, but from a very pragmatic standpoint? How do we combat people realizing that you can create some things and, and there's there's not a stigma that it's going to lower your property value or even even beyond that. How do we get them to stop thinking in those terms? This is going to be hard to hear from me 
But a lot of people who have those fears, they're legitimate fears. There are, you know, like I said, uh, because it's not done right. You know, it's not done right. Like I said, if you're trying to, you have this program called House First, right? That they're that they're trying to force on everybody. We don't care if they got a needle in their arm. Let's put them in housing, right? <laughs> that usually turns into a disaster, and here's why: because when you house somebody who's not ready, who's not clean, instead of getting them into a shelter and in a program and getting them clean first, what happens is a lot of these individuals, a, they're still addicted, b, they have drug debts, and the drug dealers will find out where they are, and if they don't, a new drug dealer will because they know that they're addicts. They can smell an addict from a mile away, and what's going to happen is that low-income supportive hotel or housing unit that you build in that nice area that everybody's up in arms about will end up becoming a problem. And that's why I talk about a creating specialized services for veterans, for just the elderly, for just the handicapped or women and children. That way you can offset that. Like I said, Silmar, see, it's how you sell it to the people and how Mm -hmm. you make it happen. Uh, That that's going to be the key. Uh, But that's a real thing. I'm sorry. It's just the reality of it. When you put somebody in housing first, and they're not ready. Here's an example of that. I have a friend I'll call Little Baby. Uh, she's a 42-year-old woman who has the mental capacity of a seven-year-old, has no business being in the streets of Skid Row. I've been her godfather, so to speak, for the last seven years. And Little Baby, I uh, found her in the street. She was from Houston. Houston dumped her in LA. And I saw how she was being taken advantage of in the street. It tore my heart up. I worked like an animal to try to get her into a wonderful organization called Weingart and they finally accepted her. There, well, once she was in the Weingart Center, she had issues with her roommates who were taking her medication. So well, they worked together to get her housed in her own hotel room. And she got she got a hotel room, right? Okay, now here was her issue. Not only was it mental illness, she also had a, an addiction problem. And because of the addiction problem, you had people coming into the hotel, offering her drugs, kicking her out of her room, abusing her, and then she stopped taking her prescribed medication, right? Because they housed her first, right? With no management, no caseworkers, housed her first. Uh, two weeks ago, she stabbed somebody in the hotel. Thankfully, she didn't kill them. And uh, and now she's sitting in a jail cell. And that's not her fault. That's the system's fault. Right. And right. now I'm sitting here in tears and also in prayer and talking to the organization, begging them, do not put her back out in the streets. And when she gets out, can you please just keep her room? And thank God that they agreed. But once again, if you house them, that doesn't mean you're not gonna have problems. You have to put people who are ready. And here's what it looks like to me. If I had a magic wand, the first people you should house are people who are already in the shelters who are benefiting from the programs. There are people who've been in the shelters who are clean and sober. Some of them are even running the program. They just need a place to stay. House them first. Because now, if you house them first, not only do you have clean and sober people, but they also have a what? An instant support group, right? Yes. <laughs> make, sure, make sure you have some good security, right? <laughs> to make sure things don't go sideways, right? House them first and then let the missions backfill and get the other groups ready and then continue in that manner rather than just grabbing somebody and say, here, here's your key, because that fails every time, fails every time. So I understand the concerns of citizens, but if our elected officials talk to someone like me. And even if you don't want to talk to to someone like me, talk to other people who will tell you the truth. If you get it right, we can end this thing in a responsible way. That beautiful, beautiful. Because that was going to be my next question. So I'm glad you brought that up. You know, um, as it seems to be something that is systemic, you know, it is going to take the, not only the awareness, but the willingness of the, of our governing officials uh, and our elected officials to, to really 
you know, put some effort behind it. I was thinking about, you know, funds or lack thereof or the unwillingness to put funds in that direction uh, for whatever reason. And I think that's part of the issue that we have to try and overcome is we've not only got to bring awareness, but with solutions, we've got to get the people who have control of the ability to create solutions on board. And even if you uh, you, you 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 have our elected officials on board, here's the thing. A lot of people believe that if you throw money at a situation, it's going to solve it. And that's the mistake a lot of our officials. It's not money, it's method. Mm -hmm. uh, in California, in Los Angeles, they uh, voted for a program called Triple H, which brought $1.2 billion that was supposed to quote unquote in homelessness as we know it and house 10,000 homeless. Uh, but what happened was a progressive form of trickle down economics. And here's what it looks like. That 1.2, 900, 900 million of that 1.2 billion has already been spent. And guess who we got spent on? Advocates, <laughs> bureaucracy, uh, uh, social workers, and uh, construction companies that charge 500 to $700,000 per unit. Per unit, imagine that one apartment costs 500 to $700,000. So $900 million have already been spent and given the bureaucrats and advocacy groups to distribute the funds for more think tanks, more, more, more studies, and what's left to help the homeless that much. Right. And they didn't even scratch, the, they didn't even scratch their service. They barely built a handful of housing units because they're going about it the wrong way. Uh, and so, yeah, we do need our elected officials to stop talking to the quote unquote experts, because you got to understand there are individuals, groups out there who benefit from poverty. It's called poverty pimping. Okay. Mm -hmm. if, if, if you, if we proved it when we cleaned up Skid Row and made it safe, the advocates got upset because we took away their ability to prostitute the image of homelessness. Right. Right. <laughs> and make money off of it. Yep. And that's why they fought us tooth and nail to tie our hands and send Skid Row back to what it was in the 90s, you know, because they benefit off of that. And that's the right. reality of it. And, and political leaders, because they yell the loudest, they tend to bend their ear. But they look at someone like me and they say, oh, Joseph, we know you're telling the truth, but you're just a cop. We want to go another direction, right? But I don't have a dog in the fight. You know, I don't, I'm not political. This is what I see, you know? So listen to someone who's on the streets, Who's right. There are caseworkers who want to tell the truth about how hard it is to get people clean. There are people, firefighters, who want to tell the truth about what's happening out there, but they're not listening to the boots on the ground. They're listening to people with a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. Right. Man, go ahead, Joseph. Yeah, I was going kind of like in our area. There's like groups around it that that every time, uh, kind of like our mayor does anything that's not helping the homeless, they'll point out, well, why are they spend all this money on here when we've got this X amount of homelessness? Why are they trying to make this area a better place to live when we got X amount of homelessness? And it's kind of like they're out just. And I get it, money should be going to that, but they they get uh, mad at the mayor, I guess, because they don't they don't feel like he, he's not doing everything that they think they should. So you got a lot of that issue kind of the political thing that they want something done but they, they're just going about it in the wrong ways so they're they're fighting the wrong fight i guess because they're, they're pushing for what they think will fix the problem instead of actually wanting to, to talk to people like you to figure out what the actual core is they just feel like getting their mind well this we need more homeless shelters if we had more homeless shelters we wouldn't have nearly as many homeless but it's still not fixing that problem that you was talking about but, yeah they, they have this it's our way or the highway mentality we mm -hmm. want to solve the problem if you don't talk to us it's not going to get solved 
and they never really want to sit at the table. They say they want to sit at the table, but their actual goal is to turn it over. And they do not, and I promise you, I'm not saying this out of hate or anger. I've been dealing with these folks for 16 years. These activist groups that fight me tooth and nail to keep the homeless safe. Uh, they don't want things to change. They talk a good game. They have college professors that come and say things, $10,000 words to brain hunt uh, people into believing what they're selling. But the reality is, and I was told this by members of their own organization, that they're not trying to solve homelessness. Uh, they're trying to exacerbate it. So really, I would say shelter first, create safe sleep areas for the homeless. Yes, continue to build housing, but the priority should be shelter first and in those shelters, wraparound services to get these people connected to housing. Uh, and that's one way to tamp down on the, uh, uh, the dangerous environment that we're seeing of allowing encampments on the streets where rapes and overdoses and horrible things are happening to the homeless. And not just the homeless now, we're seeing it happen in just the everyday people, sometimes walking by those encampments. Uh, because once again, uh, I, I'm, I'm advocating criminalizing someone for being homeless. That, that's wrong, that should never happen. But we should never really ignore the realistic fallout of allowing homelessness to exacerbate and expand and metastasize. We have to acknowledge that. So there needs to be a balanced approach that has everything, enforcement, order, and outreach. We, in a, during the 2005 to 2011, we had a program called the Safer Cities Initiative. And it was called, uh, uh, our slogan was enforcement, enhancement, outreach. But one wasn't ahead of the other. All three were operating simultaneously in a synergetic manner. And here's what it looked like. Yes, the police went in there because so many people were dying, so many people were getting murdered, that we enforced everything to the letter of the law to send the message that Skid Row is no longer the place you can come and destroy yourself and hurt people's ability to get clean. But working alongside with that was the enhancement piece where trees were trimmed, sidewalks were cleaned, slats were put in the sidewalk for the handicapped, okay, graffiti removal, lights were put up so women felt safer at night. That was a beautiful thing that was happening. And then the third and most important prong to me was outreach where we had a program called SOS uh, where uh, basically we provided alternatives to jail. A lot of people don't realize that we were using enforcement to provide alternatives to jail. We were doing it already. And how, what it looked like was if we arrested somebody and we knew based on our rap sheet that addiction, mental health and chronic homelessness was what was driving them to commit these crimes and they didn't kill anybody, we would provide you an alternative to jail, a 21 day program that suited your needs, whether it was a mental health program, whether it was a drug program or whatever. And if you complete that program in 21 days, we drop the charges, we drop it, you know? And it actually worked. Now, did it work like gangbusters? No, now, I remember one year, 2,225 individuals were signed up for the program, but only about 30% of them completed, but my God, that's 30% who are no longer in the streets, who went home to be with their loved ones, who got it together and benefited from the program. And before even getting in our handcuffs, our city attorney's office had a program called HALO. And HALO was where they would have clinics that they would hold monthly at the, at the uh, shelters. And if you had warrants, if you had a problem, if you had an issue, you wanted to get crossed before you got arrested, you go there, we take care of it. But once again, we're not gonna give you something for free. We know what your issue is. Sign up for this program, you complete it, we drop it. And crime dropped 40%. Death dropped 33%. Uh, rapes dropped dramatically across the board. And Skid Row actually became a place that was conducive to, to positive change for about six years until lawsuits and change in laws uh, by ill-informed uh, advocates and uh, elected officials, sadly, and judges. Yeah, that's good. And it seems like a lot of things, and 
I know kind of getting off the top of the church, but a lot of things that would be better laws in place to help instead of just shipping people into prisons and jail cells, actually mm-hmm. creating programs that will actually help get the root cause and help them get past their addictions and everything else. So that is right. definitely a big thing that I would love to see happen also. But yeah. Yeah, we got, we got to get them there first. And many of them uh, are not going on their own. And that's why I say don't use enforcement to lock somebody up forever. Get them in custody. And if, they, if, if their issue is addiction, the judge put put them in the mandatory program. Because I'm telling you, right now, it's basically there's no mandatory programs. Nobody's going to the program to get clean. And things are getting right. worse. So listen, right. I'll say it like this. The homeless can't be above the law. No one can be above the law. When they're super rich or above the law, what do we have? We have Enron, we have Scandal, we have Social Security getting wiped away, people's life savings, old people getting thrown in the street, right? That's what happens when the rich are above the law. When the other extreme is above the law, what do we have? We have Skid Row and a metastasized. And that's what we're seeing across this country. Take a hands-off approach, let them do whatever they want to do. No checks and balances, no regulation, no accountability. Now homelessness is exploding. So no one can be above the law. But with the homeless, I believe it should be a special circumstances where you include outreach, and services with the enforcement. That's what I saw. That's the one thing that I saw was effective in 23 years of policing that area. Because I can tell you right now, this hands-off approach, you know, maybe they're going to, it's not working, brothers. It's, it's just not working. And yes, the church could be effective in selling that message as well, if it makes sense to you. I know it makes sense to me only because I've been walking in it for, uh, for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to, to, to note that uh, yes, the hands-off approach doesn't concern me inside of my jurisdiction. It's not my backyard. All those things that you've mentioned, that, that certainly is not going to change things. And, and I think as, as you guys are as talking, you know, uh, from a uh, church perspective, you know, we could assist in some of these outreach portions. Uh, again, you know, obviously we cannot enforce, but we can certainly be developing programs. We can certainly be doing some outreach ministries. We can certainly be operating outside of uh, any kind of federal um, grant systems and some other things. I mean, there are ways for us as a body of Christ to operate and be able to do some things without having to wait for someone else to tell us to do it or how to do it for that matter. Yes, yes, I love it. What if the church worked with the DA's office? Okay, let the police do their job. We arrest them, but the church comes in and says, hey, we created a program at our church. We'll take this person so they don't have to be locked up in the system. It it could be a whole bigger version of what we call the SOS program, but the church gets involved and says, hey, we have a drug program at our church. Uh, If you drop the charges, we'll take this person in for 30 days and help get them clean. That's what I'm talking about. You know, no. but, but you, you, you still you still have to bring them in. You still have to get them. Yes. You have to get their attention by getting them in custody. But let's all work together. The church, district attorney's office, social services to come together, because guess what? Social services alone aren't helping. They can't. They're overwhelmed. Yeah. This is where the church can step in. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd yeah. love to see the church step up in a bigger, huge way and all that. Yeah. We, and, we yeah. Should, and we should. You know, I mean, you talk about. I, the body, we talk about the body of Christ. And in this conversation, one thing that I take away, and I hope that you all take away from this as well, is the body not only on just, just encompasses believers, but the body encompasses organizations, right? Because you've got people who believe in every area of government, every area of nonprofit, every area of ministry, every area of governance, every area of law enforcement. So, you know, if if the body is more than just the self, then why are we not creating a body of organizations 
to allow us to be more effective. Because there's some brilliant people in the church. I mean, my God, there are there, there are drug counselors who go to church. The, these folks will be great in helping to assist their church in organizing and putting things together to be able to help beyond the system, the government system. Because look, you know, I'm not anti-government, but let's just be real. The government doesn't do a good job with almost anything other than the post office, right? And even that has problems sometimes, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it, it's, it's really going to have to involve people with the knowledge, with the skill, with the know-how uh, to step up in their church and say, Pastor, I want to create this per- program that I think can work uh, and bring your knowledge to create organizations and networks, once again, with other churches. I don't want any church trying to be the star of the show. You know, yes. I guarantee you if, you, if you tamp down self, God's going to be elevated. Okay. Absolutely. Th- th- and that's, it's going to work. It's going to work when you, when you put down you and elevate God, it's going to work. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. That, that's it, man. And that's a beautiful thing. And, and, and that's the thing, as you're talking, I, I just, my mind's always running. And, you know, if you're not in ministry per se, whether you're volunteer or uh, especially if you're employed in ministry for whatever reason, everyone else has a job for the most part or an area of expertise or something else they're doing outside of the church. Most people who are just, if you're your, your congregation, they come, they hear the word, they have careers. You've got a, you've got a resource right there within the walls of your building. You've got a resource right Absolutely. there within your, in your flock. So we've got to start tapping in guys. Is that's the one thing I definitely want you guys to take away as we've been talking here is, you know, the resources are already there. You already have access to them. Now it's just a matter of us mobilizing those resources to start doing some great good. Yeah. And, yeah. Just, and I want to oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, go ahead. Somebody, whoever's listening out there, if you're listening, you're inspired by this. I, I just want to tell you a story about a friend of mine from my church. Her name is Kasani, and she works with sex traffickers. She was a uh, victim of human trafficking herself. She was in that industry. And this is a woman who goes from beyond the walls of church. And she go, has something called the Pearl Walk. Look it up. And uh, she goes out on Figueroa where all the sex workers go. And she will go out. And these women will be out there half naked. And she goes out there and uses her experience. And that saddens me to see that there's only two or three people walking with her. Come on, church. You know, you have me. And I'm not bragging on me. Everything I do, I brag on God. You know, God putting me in a position to help. I house 150 homeless people who were, quote, unquote, ready. They were ready. Okay. Uh, I could I could share with you how that how that happens, you know. So yes, you're right. There are people inside your church who have gifts. We're just not utilizing those gifts in the church like we should. Yeah. I was I'll take that moment and run with it just for a second because I, I I think the church is flipped backwards in a lot of ways. We look at church, yeah, we need a good pastor and we need a good worship team and we need a good kids program and we kind of put push it all to one side when the church was never decide, designed to be one-sided it should be the whole body of people coming together well what talents do you have i'll see you flourish in that and actually empowering the people inside the church walls to be the church it's just not about the few people that's on the front every Sunday. it's about every person that's sitting in the pews and and creating atmospheres where they can flourish into their callings and connect them with other people who are already doing amazing great things and i think when we start doing that and the church operate like the church supposed to the whole body going out and doing greater things man what impact can we see in these areas and everything else and that's big on my heart i often preach about it I often speak about it the church needs to be a full body and not just the, a head just a head operating it should be the whole body operating and going out and plugging into different ministries different areas different 
any avenue that they can find and doing greater things. Because for me, I preach it so many times that God has put something inside of every one of us that He wants to see uh, a seed and He wants to see it kind of sprout and grow into something great. But I feel like sometimes we're limited in the church because if we don't fit into a certain certain plug that the church has, then we're, we kind of feel useless. But I think the church right. can flourish and grow so much more when we're plugging people into it and saying it's not just about what we're doing here. To, to every Sunday, it's about what we're going to go out and do in our communities and our areas and help come alongside other people and do greater things. So I'm a I'm big, big proponent of the church being the church and every part of the body working and just not the head of the church. So use that to really encourage somebody. We are designed to be the church. It doesn't matter if you feel like you're inadequate or you're playing too small apart. God's got something inside of you. He's got something great for you that he wants to use and flourish. So we need to speak that to more people so we see more people going out and helping in homeless areas if that calling's on their heart. If they see a big issue with that, they should be stepping up. We should have programs in place. Hey, we can plug you into this program. We've got this different area. We can plug you in. Hey, let's go out and represent the church well in our community and to our already existing programs and everything else. So, yeah, I yeah, wanted to run with that. No, no, that was great. Just remember, because I want to touch on what you just said. Everybody has a gift. You're not just uh, anything. I remember when I first came to Skid Row and I was like, God, what am I doing here? I can't fit this. I'm just a cop. Okay. Well, Google Officer Joseph now. See if I'm just a cop. I'm not because I realize I'm God's child and I have power. And every day I go out there and I say a prayer for God to use me for his purpose and to walk with honor and integrity, uh, give me strength where I'm weak, to give me courage where I recover and where I'm broken, heal me in times of distress. And let it be all about you, God. And when I pray that prayer and I go out there super motivated, no matter how good or bad things are, no matter how bad my environment is, I end up changing people's lives. And so understand if you're sitting in a pew and you're thinking, I'm just a new member or, you know, I just came here. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a garbage collector. That's what I do. I'm a janitor. You're not just in anything. Right. If you're in the house of the Lord and you're a part of the body of Christ, you can do powerful things wherever you are with whatever you have. Come on, look, look at the people in the Bible. I mean, a lot of these people, when you when you read about them, they weren't super amazing. You know, uh, right. Moses stuttered, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, uh, Abraham was 99 years old before him and uh, Sarah got it on and had a baby, right? You know, I'm right. just an old man. You got all these people who said, I'm just a, but God said, you're not just that. You're more than, you're more than if I'm with you. And, and that's the God we serve. So look at it like that. Get involved in your church. And let's get your church motivated to go out there and change the world because uh, that's what's needed in 2022 more than anything right now. Amen and amen. All right, guys. Uh, I try to keep these under an hour, so I'm, I'm going to try to kind of the land the plane here. So any closing thoughts? Uh, like, let's start with you, and then we'll go to and Dion can kind of finish it off, being our special guest, and kind of cap this off. And I'd love to hear both of you all's kind of closing closing comments here. Man, I think we've already touched on it, man. Dion, first of all, thank you for being here. Thank you for all the work that you do. Uh, and, and it's definitely a blessing to, to be able to have and share uh, the stage, so to speak, with another gentleman who's really trying to get out here and do some great things and, and is practiced and experienced in, in some things that uh, some of us are not. And I think it, it's definitely something that we need to be willing to listen to is those people who have the experience, the, the boots on the ground, as you said, the people who have been in, in those those situations so that we can gain greater understanding of what is needed and how we can help. So, uh, yeah, I think it's been wonderful. And, and again, I applaud you for all that you're doing. And I hope that we can continue to have these discussions because I'm very big on solutions. And I, I live somewhere, not to get too far into that, but we talk offline. I live somewhere where we've got to figure some things out and we've got to figure out a way to start addressing this on 
a more meticulous and deliberate scale, not just a larger scale, but one that's actually going to be working and sustainable. Okay, thank you. And I appreciate that, man. I'm so glad to be here. I just want to leave uh, your viewers with a message, a mantra. And it doesn't matter what you do, whether you're a janitor, a lawyer, a doctor, I created a mantra for myself. And, and, and this is what motivates me every day. And I said this, uh, my badge, my gun, my handcuffs will never be the means I utilize to invoke positive change in the lives of people. My faith, my love, and my love for mankind will always be my unyielding dogs of war. And I say that to myself every time I get out of that patrol car to reach out. And I want you to repeat that, fill in the blanks of whatever you do, you know, my mop, my broom, my legal book, whatever. That's not your means. That's not, it's your love, your faith, and your love for mankind that should always be our unyielding dogs of war. And I'll leave you guys with that. Now, thank you guys for having me. If you want to connect with me, I'm on Facebook, Officer Dion Joseph fan page. I have Officer Dion Joseph on Twitter, OFCR Dion Joseph. And you can go to my website at www.dionjoseph.org. And uh, if you want me to come and share uh, some stories with you, I'll fly all across this country and do it. I would love to meet with you and tell, tell these stories. Absolutely, and especially to our viewers connect with Dion online. Uh, I've shared his uh, his website and some other things on on our, uh, our information here, so check that out and definitely encourage this man. And like you said, get him out and book him. Also, if this message has blessed you in any way, get help us share it because you out there, the Broken Church community, help us grow this by just sharing and getting the word out. And we definitely need the word spoken today to go out and hopefully shine some light into this area like uh, uh, Dion said, shining this light into these dark areas and kind of illuminate some things because so many people don't know what to do or how to make a difference. And I feel like getting things out like this, this dialogue, this uh, conversation can be beneficial. So help get this word out and just share it wherever you can get it out. And it will be a blessing for us also. But thank you guys and gentlemen for being with us this afternoon. And uh, we appreciate it. And for the Broken Church, just focus on Christ because Christ is not broken. When we look at Jesus, then we see the full church come full circle the way it's designed to be. Thank you guys. Have a Thank blessed you. rest of your day. Thank you guys. God bless.